Welcome, y'all, to the Direct Examination Podcast. My name is Joseph Bias. You may notice from your episode description that this show is going to be a little different. We're actually on summer break. We're taking time to deal with kids and jobs and puppies, in my case. But don't worry, we will be back very soon with regular episodes and content. But until then, we have partnered up with SC4CJR and their founder, Ali Minigakis, to bring you some special episodes, some awesome discussions with some amazing attorneys and uh, individuals to talk about criminal defense. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this very special bonus episode of the Direct Examination Podcast. Welcome, everyone. My name is Ali Menegakis, and I am the founder and executive director of South Carolina for Criminal Justice Reform. For those of you listening, you are listening to the Direct Examination podcast with our summer edition with featuring South Carolina for Criminal Justice Reform, SC4CJR. And this is our second episode of the podcast for the summer. And we have a lot more important issues to discuss with you all tonight. Um, welcome, everyone. So, you know, South Carolina for Criminal Justice Reform is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to achieving holistic criminal justice reform in South Carolina through research, education, collaboration, and advocacy. We're unique in that we take a multidisciplinary approach to reform. Our team is made up of individuals who have been victims in the criminal justice system, like formerly incarcerated individuals, those who have worked within the system, like public defenders, mental health professionals, former police officers, prosecutors, and those who study the system, like academics and researchers. We all come together to identify problems in the system educate the public on these problems and work together to create smart solutions. Speaking of smart, we've got some fantastic guests with us tonight. I am so humbled and honored to have with us Pastor Dixon, who is a local um, activist, a community leader, and his uh, resume is, is so long. I, I don't even know if I can get to all of it, but I will just briefly introduce Ms., uh, Pastor Dixon. He's a community advocate who's on the board of trustees for several organizations, including Brady United, Charleston Alliance for Fair Employment, Healthcare Workers United. He's also the chairman of the Democratic Black Caucus of South Carolina, Charleston County chapter. In 2016, Pastor Dixon ran for the U.S. Senate in South Carolina. And in 2019, he ran for the office of mayor of North Charleston. He was awarded the Wiley A. Branton Issues Symposium Award by the National Bar Association for his work working gun violence prevention and was instrumental in filing a lawsuit in South Carolina that has virtually shut down the South Carolina secessionist party, its leader and its online presence. We are his awards go on and on. Um, he told me not to go too much into them tonight, but we are so, so grateful to have him. He has been um, very present and and vocal in this um, in the conversations after the video release of Jamal Sutherland's death. And we're so happy to have him with us. Welcome, Pastor Dixon. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to be 
amongst the panelists here to have been invited invited by SC4 uh, CJR uh, to be a part of this panel. And um, thank you so very much for keeping the bio part as brief as possible. <laughs> I, we'll, have another we'll have another episode and we'll just go into your awards because there's so many. Um, and we're honored uh, to have you here, Pastor. Mm-hmm. Also joining us, I'm very excited, uh, Alicia Rico Flores, who I still occasionally go back to calling her Judge Flores, but she told me not to do that. Um, Alicia Flores was a, a judge in, in the city of Charleston for many years, um, and she recently retired just a few months ago and became the Director of Systems Change for South Carolina through Re- Root and Rebound. So she's Root and Rebound South Carolina, Director of Systems Change. Her, fo- her work focuses on reentry advocacy, transforming the criminal justice system in South Carolina through impact litigation, policy reform, education, and direct services. We love Root and Rebound. We've had them on before. Um, Root and Rebound, if you don't know about them, we'll put that in, the, in a link to it in our chat here, but Root and Rebound's mission is to restore power and resources to the families and communities most harmed by mass incarceration through legal advocacy, public education, policy reform, and litigation, a model rooted in the needs and expertise of people who are directly impacted. And what a great leader to have in that organization. Um, Alicia, former judge, great to have you here. Thank you, Allie, it's great to be here. And of course, the debut for our Facebook Live and podcast for Joseph Jacobs, who is a member of South Carolina for Criminal Justice Reform. We met randomly through a friend. Um, Joseph, you know, now works in um, physical therapy and and, um, strength training. And but Joe is a former um, police officer from the city of Charleston Police Department. He's also an Army veteran. Um, And in 2011, he graduated from the Citadel. He earned his bachelor's degree in political science. Um, He began taking an interest in government and criminal justice on both the local and federal level. And during his final year of military service, Joe joined the Charleston Police Department, where he worked for six years in the downtown area. Joe cites the origins of his passion for criminal justice reform began when he started working in the Team 9 division of CPT, where many issues would arise, often stemming from substance abuse, homelessness, and mental health. Joe observed that the individuals that suffer these issues would often be the most in need on a daily basis. So he is going to be so fitting for this conversation today. He has a a great background um, and a squeaky clean, almost unbelievable record as a police officer where he never even once used any kind of less than lethal force like a taser, never used any lethal force, never had any complaints against him. In fact, he was awarded um, an award at CPD where he actually saved a man's life who was um, about to kill himself. So um, he focuses a lot on de-escalation and physical training for officers, which he believes is lacking. Joe, I'm so excited to finally have you on the show. Thank you so much, Ali. It's great to be here and it's a pleasure to be part of the panel with everyone. All right. Well, I can't wait to start talking about this. I'm sad that we have to talk about these issues once again. Um, Why are we talking tonight? What has been going on? Well, it's almost like deja vu. So last last year, so South Carolina for criminal justice reform, you know, we were founded what, like January of 2020 um, before the pandemic. 
almost a year ago, it seems like to the day, we were doing the same thing, talking about George Floyd, right? We had this incredible movement, um, activism, protests, legislative changes, you know, not just locally, but nationwide. And yet here again, we're talking about these same issues when it comes to police or, or correctional officers killing innocent black men, um, people of color. And that's why I'm so excited to talk with all of you today, because there's a lot of things that can that people are calling to be done um, that might fix a short term solution, uh, at least to the, the issues regarding, you know, what happened specifically to Jamal Sutherland. But we're going to need bigger change if we want to see a actual prevention of killing of people of color. Um, so if y'all, those who are listening on the podcast, you know, we're here in Charleston. We're based here at approximately 11 p.m. on May 13th. Video footage was released um, from Charleston County Sheriff's Office, which showed the death of Jamal Sutherland. Jamal um, was in his early 30s, uh, black man. He was being treated for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder at Palmetto Low Country Behavioral Health on January 4th of 2021. And something happened at the facility where a nurse called 911. North Charleston Police Department arrived on scene. They arrested Jamal Sutherland and then they transported him directly to the Charleston County Jail, where he was booked in. He was then taken into the custody of the Charleston County Sheriff's Office, where he was placed in a solitary cell, um, not in the mental health unit, but in a different unit, which is really focused on behavioral problems. Um, and after I think about like 12 hours, several deputies tried to extract him, or I should say several correction officers tried to extract him from the cell. Um, and during that process, they sprayed um, pepper spray on him, tased him several times, um, and he died as a result. There was also an attempt to place him into a restraining chair when he was clearly unconscious. The entirety of this video, which I think is, I think the rarest part about this issue compared to other ones is that we have so much video of what happened at least so far to Jamal Sutherland. And I think there's even more video out there that we're hoping to get, um, but it is really disgusting what happened to Jamal. Um, but the scariest thing I think of all that we all agree on is that it is not rare. It happens all the time. Um, and perhaps if Jamal had not passed away, we never would have heard about it. So we wanna get into talking about these issues. I wanna start with you, Pastor Dixon, um, if that's okay. You have been out on the streets in the media talking about the need for reform for many years. Um, and you're out again this week um, and have been for several weeks demanding justice for Jamal Sutherland. Can you go into details about what you think needs to change in, in Charleston and South Carolina as a whole? Um, one of the primary things that needs to change uh, it's the reason why I think you've seen the, the T-shirts we wear that say, do you believe us now? Um, one of the primary things that needs to change is that as we have uh, amplified the voice of the people because of the injustice that's being uh, been uh, historically perpetrated against black people by law enforcement, 
that law enforcement and municipal municipal governments and our state and federal government government needs to listen and pay attention and do something. The reason why we have the T-shirts, because after Walter Scott, after telling law enforcement and city government for a long time, there was a problem. They ignored us. And so when the video surfaced on Walter Scott, do you believe us now? That's one thing that could happen uh, that needs to happen. Also, a change uh, in the accountability of our law enforcement agencies. Uh, the policies, procedures and protocols need to have a direct level of accountability of accountability back to the people. The voice of the people needs to be heard. Uh, civilian review boards with subpoena power, um, not placing officers on administrative leave with pay in these officer involved incidences. If they're exonerated, they can get their back pay. If they're guilty, they need to be actually not only terminated, actually, well, they should be terminated anyway up front and they can be reinstated. But if found guilty, then they need to make sure that they need to be entered into a national data database that uh, do not hire database saying that they can never work in law enforcement again and anywhere in the United States, because right now they're just bouncing from agency to agency, even when they're in the aftermath of these instances where they're not litigated and convicted. Those are a few things. To start, right? <laughs> Those are yes. some places to yes. start. Only um, to start. Mm -hmm. and, and Alicia, I'd like to go to you next. Um, and if you could kind of take a moment, if you're okay with that, in discussing what it was like being a judge in the city of Charleston and what you saw as a judge, maybe going in generally, why you ended up leaving the bench and taking the job that you have and how this all kind of relates back to Jamal Sutherland. In a word, it was frustrating. I was at when I was serving as a judge, it was a fairly common occurrence for an individual to appear before me that clearly had mental health challenges. And so the individuals would appear for a hearing. Um, usually they were in the detention center and they would appear before us via video technology. And a lot of times they were not mentally healthy enough to even participate in a hearing. And when this occurred, I would try my best to contact the jail, contact mental health officials or social service providers within the jail to seek assistance. Is there someone who can evaluate him? Is there some place that he can go, he or she can go to get the help that they need? And most of the time I was was not able to accomplish that. I was not able to move the case forward due to a, a due to a defendant's mental health challenges. And so it became clear to me that the jail was oftentimes used as a place for someone to detox, um, a place where an individual was taken who was having a mental health episode, was in a mental health crisis, and whether then it being treated like what it was, it was treated 
in a manner that involved a criminal arrest. And so over time, it, w- it came to, I came to the realization that I would be more effective in working towards systemic change as opposed to remaining in a system with so many challenges and that was systematically unfair to these individuals. And one thing that was frustrating as well was the lack of representation for a defendant in their first appearance at a hearing. Uh, There wasn't a public defender available um, to speak on their behalf. And it sort of makes you wonder if this could have gone differently if Mr. Sutherland was refusing to leave the cell, perhaps a public defender could have spoken up and said, We're, I'm, gonna, I'm here on his behalf and we will waive his appearance at this time and I will make an argument for his release. And I'm not sure if that happened or not. I, I, I'm not sure if there was a public defender available or if there was an attorney available on his behalf to represent him. But I can tell you in the municipal court, that was often not the case. Yeah, and I think more facts are going to start coming out um, the more this case is getting investigated, You know, not just by law enforcement, but also by the media and organizations like ours. Um, and activists in the community. But, you know, I'd like to go just briefly um, to Joe Jacobs, who you kind of have like a similar story about your time um, in law enforcement, why you decided to terminate your service there. Um, Do you feel comfortable sharing about that? Absolutely, Ali. Uh, I, you know, listening to Judge Flores speak, it's, I echo so much of that because I was usually in the same room as her when these things were going on. If I had to write somebody a citation, take them to jail, you know, I witnessed the exact same thing, lack of representation. Many times you're dealing with individuals, especially in the downtown area, who are battling substance abuse issues. Very often that's coupled with mental health issues. I was very frustrated because it was to the point where I'm writing the same ticket over and over and over to the same person. And I don't like doing things without reason. And maybe we could try to help this person. Instead, we just take them to jail or stroke them a ticket. If you try to show leniency to some individuals, you get a call. Within minutes, if you just walk away, I guarantee you a business owner is going to call someone in my chain of command or who has some influence over someone in my chain of command. And then the texts are going to come down to my phone. Hey, this issue, I need it dealt with. So I was oftentimes I felt my hands were tied to where if I just let somebody go, I tried to give them a break instead of just write them a ticket or take them to jail. You know, we may have to field a complaint or I would have some form of repercussion to deal with. And I just, I frankly got tired of that. I mean, there's plenty of wonderful officers that I worked with and I'm still very close with, but the system uh, on a whole, there's much to be desired, especially when it comes to people that are at risk, you know, as it is just living their day-to-day life. 
Thanks, Jeff. Um, Pastor Dixon, how do you, after hearing those comments, what what do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I love the um, how we've moved to the area, including the mental health aspect of it. But um, and I, the question about uh, reform, I wanted to add just a couple of points in there uh, that um, we definitely need to uh, improve our our community relations uh, with law enforcement um, in a couple of ways. One, having law enforcement officers that live in the communities that they serve, because it's kind of hard to shoot your neighbor in the back or to harm him when you're uh, when, he's, when it's your neighbor or your neighbor's child. And um also uh, to increase the presence of the, eth the ethnic um, population in the neighborhood that you're serving. The law enforcement officers need to uh, understand the, the, the background uh, uh, of the people that they're serving, the community where they're serving. So we need to try to target that. But uh, also the focusing on de-escalation. Uh, de-escalation tactics, more training in de-escalating these issues. Because if it, even in the detention center with the detention deputies with Jamal Sutherland, that, that was an aggressive lack of de-escalation that, that just heightened a bad situation. It was bad enough he suffered from a mental illness, but then to add the uh, over-aggressive, the pepper spraying, then the tasing, now it, all full transparency, See, I've been in Alcannon Detention Center before it was Alcannon Detention Center, also Berkeley County Detention Center and Dorchester County Detention Centers, and not as a visitor. Okay, let me just be clear about that. I've seen tactical teams at work before, and six folks would rush up in a cell and overwhelm the person they were coming in for. They did not deploy any type of pepper sprays or tasers or anything like that that it was all just physically overwhelming and subduing a person. Um, I don't know when things shifted to that method that we saw uh, used against Jamal Sutherland, but that's just crazy. Um, and the other side of that, since with the shift in our conversation has gone to mental health, many times we, we focus on the mental health of the, the victim of Jamal Sutherland. Uh, but the reality is we don't really have psychological evaluations available for our law enforcement officers uh, after, I don't believe, after their hiring, once they're hired, until someone dies. When someone dies, then they say, okay, let's go get a mental health evaluation done. I, I, I'm not exactly sure if that's 100% correct, but there needs to be ongoing mental health evaluations on, uh, with, our, um, with our law enforcement officers. Why? Because everybody's day starts out differently. A bad night can lead into a very bad day uh, for someone, especially when you have a gun and a badge and the authority to, uh, to over aggressively handle someone. So those are a few things that I just wanted to interject there. Thank you for that. So, well, let's talk about, let's talk about what happened to Mr. Sutherland and kind of go break down um, point by point. So first, it's under our understanding so far that he was checked in voluntarily to Palmetto Behavioral Health, which is a mental health facility in Charleston County um, that I do believe is equipped to handle mental health crises. Regardless, he's at that facility. According to the victim's family and attorney, um, 
from the information we gathered from their press conference, it's my understanding so far that what actually happened, that there was some kind of altercation between two patients in the facility. The family is saying that of, um, that Mr. Sutherland was attempting to de-escalate that um, conflict that was going on. And during that interaction, he had hit an employee, I think a nurse of the behavioral health facility. At that point, law enforcement or 911 was called. So the behavioral health center calls 911. Let's talk about that first, I think, is, a, is an important issue. And, and maybe Judge Flores, you, you might be um, good to start with this. If someone is having a mental health crisis, there's you know a few things that can be done, right? One is you can actually check them into the hospital, um, right, Joe? And, and I know you used to do that as a law enforcement officer all the time. And you, can you talk about that for a little bit? Yes, yeah, so we've there have been instances where individuals you you have that sort of you can take them to jail or you can try to take them to the hospital for a sort of mental health check. And we're, there's times where we've had to take people. You can always write them a ticket if you're bent on some form of municipal charge. But when it comes to a mental health crisis, you're not going to force them to just comply without issue. You know, they're not just going to give up as someone who just wants to be difficult because they don't have control over their actions. So many times you could take them to the hospital and if they have to be restrained and sedated, that's fine. They're at least around medical professionals, doctors, nurses, and then hopefully they get time to clear and then you can move forward with any sort of um, police interaction that you need to. But yes, it's, it's, it's a very common thing that I've had to do many times, take them to the hospital for having an episode. One would think, right, that, you know, if you're at a behavioral health center, that there you should have people that are equipped and trained to handle, um, you know, someone that might be having perhaps a manic episode or becoming delusional or violent. Right. Um, just as, you know, the hospital and the emergency room and the mental health ward of the hospital would have. But in this case, that did not happen. Authorities were called. And it's our understanding. I think there was actually a. Uh, a statement that was released from Palmetto Behavioral Health that said that this is not uncommon, um, that they do call 911 semi-regularly for issues like this because they do not have the resources they need to handle these kinds of crises. And see, it seems to go back to the resources. Um, I often wonder if we took more funding and applied it towards social service opportunities, op social service resources within the community, if we could avoid some of these tragedies, if there were a detox center, if there was a crisis unit, more than a few, you know, the, if there was a crisis, a mental health crisis unit, vehicle, that was always available to be the first on scene in these types of incidences, I think the outcome would be much different. But it, it seems that we are putting all of the resources or a lot of the resources into law enforcement 
and the criminalization of these types of occurrences, as opposed to increasing our funding in the areas that could more readily address these mental health issues? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Pastor. Yeah, Yeah, Alicia, that's uh, exactly where the cry from the movement for black lives to mislabeled without a doubt mislabeled where they cried defund the police and they're not talking about take all the money and get away and get rid of police what they're talking about which again it's mislabeled um they're talking about making sure that funding is allocated correctly in order to address the real issues that are faced by law enforcement and our communities every day, uh, ensuring that there's more money put into um, preventive measures uh, when there's a police engagement with the mentally ill, um, bringing more people on, more educated people that are trained in that area. And that's really what the movement to defund the police, I'm going to just use that term that's used, although it's an, an erroneous term. Uh, but that's what what's meant by it. So no one's talking about taking away the police and taking all the money out. But no, reallocating those funds that they, they that are being spent to militarize and 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 <laughs> for just for, for policing and move those funds into areas that's actually going to decrease the necessity of the mil- militaristic type policing and make the police uh, department more um, um not only available, but uh, relevant to the community that they serve at all levels. So that, that's, that's really what it's all about. Mm-hmm. So let's move on from, you know, the Behavioral Health um, Center. They call 911, North Charleston Police Department. They come in. That's in their jurisdiction. They take Mr. Sutherland. They handcuff him. They place him into the police car. We assume we haven't seen those videos yet from North Charleston Police Department. Hopefully we'll get those soon. Um, And they transport him to the county jail. And Joe, as you were saying, that that wasn't necessarily required, right? They did not actually have to take him to the jail. I think we have seen a lot of the video and there's a lot more out there that shows Mr. Sutherland is clearly in, in my opinion, and, and some of our other mental health professionals' opinions, delusional. He's talking about the Illuminati at that point. Um, he does not seem to be present and able to understand what is happening to him at that point. Joe, from your experience as being a police officer who dealt with people that were mentally ill, what would have been your options at that point? You've got someone who's in the back of your car who's clearly in a crisis. What are your options? I think for me in that situation, I would not have gone straight to jail. Of course, so many things. I don't know what the communication with the arresting officer, his first line supervisor, what that was. That could have played a role. It may not have. But for me, I'm thinking we go, you know, if I'm in downtown Charleston and I just had to arrest somebody there having an issue, I think to go to the emergency room where they can at least be taken care of the jail not so much they're being incarcerated there but for me i'm taking them to the er so they can get a clear mental health evaluation and joe whose call would that have been would it have been you as the arresting officer who makes that call 
Well, again, it depends on, I don't know how big the scene got. It might've been just the officer on scene showed up. He might've had an, he or she might've had another individual with them and then they can handle it. I always believe going to your first line supervisor and have them make that call. You know, they have more experience, they have grade and rank and time. I try to defer big decisions to them and then I go with that. So it would either be the arresting officers. And if he went to his supervisor, it would fall on his supervisor, possibly the sergeant or even up to a lieutenant level. Why might an officer choose not to take someone to the hospital? Oh, that's you're adding hours onto your shift there. Can you talk about that? What would be the difference there, Joe? Well, I mean, it's, it's simple. You could take someone. I mean, it could be for a variety of things. Take someone, I take them to jail as long as usually the people that will turn an, an in, or not an inmate, a subject away will be maybe the nursing staff. If there was an injury, if there was an altercation, they could elect to know you need to get them cleared by someone in the ER. So you're talking, you could take someone to the jail. Originally, yes. there could be a nurse, a mental health specialist or someone at the jail who would yes. say, you know what, Officer Jacobs, this is not the right place for this person. Go to the emergency room and then you can bring him or her back after. Right. Right. That will almost anytime my experience, it was only for like if it was like a physical altercation where they might have had some appreciable injuries like a head laceration. They're worried about head trauma, mental health. Not so much because that's not so blatantly obvious when you're looking at someone, just looking at them. Um, so you could just basically drop them off at the jail and then you'll see them at their next court date. Or if you elect the route to take them to the hospital to try to get them a mental health diagnosis or just screened, you have to wait with them. And in an ER, you're waiting for hours. So there's pressure there. Even if you really think that, hey, he needs to, he or she needs to get checked out. Let's just sit with him. The jail is not the best place right now. Now you're pressured because you're a body that's off the street and you're going to get pressured. Hey, either take them to jail or you're going to sit with them. And if it's an hour before your shift is up and you're waiting with them for four hours, oh, well. So some people elect not to go that route, unfortunately. Right. So just like anyone brings a loved one to the hospital, the ER or yourself, you know how long that process takes. It can be hours, usually at least three hours, right? At the least, the officer would have to stay with that individual the entire time because they are technically still under arrest. Right. So after they are cleared, which could be a day later, um, then you would transport them to the jail. Right. Okay. Exactly. I, I can I can see that, you know, um, does it justify what happened? No, it, 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 not at all. Um, so what I've I've really wondered about is why there's no specific protocol in these cases. Uh, it seems to me and this is just an opinion based on what happened, that the default setting for that case was taken to jail. And they followed, and there were, there were several officers there, I believe, at uh, Palmetto Behavior. And they took uh, Mr. Sutherland to jail as a, with, without even that consideration uh, of, of a hospital. And that could be a protocol discrepancy. 
a policy discrepancy that says, okay, we need to make sure that, well, even even in interaction at Palmetto Behavior, there needs to be something, a step-by-step step that the officer on the street would be able to go by or that, 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 uh, that supervisor to be able to tell them, okay, no, uh-uh, let's, stop, let's stop the process right here. But what I actually see in this is that, that falling back to the default setting of I'm the authority, I'm the law, I'm going to do this. And the way we've done it is we take them to jail. So I, I don't know. I could be wrong. Oh, yes, sir. I agree. Um, one thing I was fortunate enough to have the knowledge I gained in dealing, I, was, I became fairly proficient at de-escalation because I dealt with so much of the homeless population in downtown Charleston, mm-hmm. which is a plethora of mental health illness, substance abuse, what have you. And unless you experience individuals with mental health issues, you don't develop that empathy. You just see them as another combative assailant or someone who had the police called on them and they're just being uncooperative to be uncooperative. It does. You don't go into that second gear of, oh, there's more going on here. It's not that they're just being belligerent because they want to. They don't like police, whatever. It's that there are things going on inside their mind that they don't have control over. And then it gets into building rapport, finding out what is ailing them. Are they delusional? Are they afraid someone's after them? Are they seeing things? Are they hearing voices? And unless you experience that regularly, a lot of officers don't sort of develop the language to deal with that. So then they revert to that default. Oh, that's a subject not being cooperative. All right, let's go lock them up. That's just what I encountered very regularly. And so here, go ahead, Judge. Uh, Go ahead, go ahead, Please, please. I was just, I had a follow-up question for Joe. Do you feel that the law enforcement officers were adequately trained in that area to recognize and act appropriately in cases where there was a mental health issue involved? It's hard to see like what is enough adequate training unless you are dealing with it there on the street. I mean, you can bring in speakers who have dealt with. I mean, when I was at the academy, we had a few people who had manic episodes and they would speak a time they got arrested. But then again, that's just a classroom setting. If it's not active, it's not dynamic and you're not you you haven't gone through that sort of trial and error of dealing with these individuals, it's very hard to get the necessary training as it were, because I mean, you can have many times it's just other officers who run scenarios, which it's just someone who's pretending to have a mental health issue. And then once they say the right words or do the right actions, then they just automatically acquiesce to the request, not accurate on the street whatsoever. It's just it's very hard to know what the best training is until you experience it firsthand. But the bottom line is that police officers are not mental health professionals. Right, Joe? And, you know, one of our our viewers on the Facebook Live said, you know, with all due respect, you know, behavioral health issues are not properly within law enforcement jurisdiction to be having to make have force a law enforcement officer to make this professional diagnosis, really, 
as to whether or not they should be in an emergency room is a really, really hard decision to make. I imagine only someone that's actually, you know, you know, educated on those issues should be able to make that decision. I think even family members of uh, um, who have loved ones who have um, mental health, you know, diagnoses or illnesses struggle to know when is the appropriate time to involve, you know, professionals or not. Um, and then asking, you know, police officers who, again, we're asking them to wear all these different types of hats. And Pastor Dixon, I guess that goes back to the, the issue of, you know, this quote unquote defund the police movement, maybe not defunding or divesting, but, you know, making police officers and allowing them to do their job. Um, and not all these other jobs on top of it. So they can actually focus on keeping us safe, right? Um, if we can free up their time uh, dealing with things that they're not trained to do, they'll be able to have more time and education and resources to actually protect us where we need them most. And those who need them the most at that particular time will have a better chance of, of, of surviving their encounter. Uh, and being able to move on, you know, as productive citizens or to get the help that they need, as opposed to being subject to, to, to policing. It's almost if we were to think of a, a school teacher, right? And we have the school teacher who's going to teach your child, let's say the second grade. And we're asking this teacher to also be the bus driver. And we're asking her to also be the cook in the cafeteria. And we're asking her to also be the PE coach and all these different hats. What time is she going to have and the resources and mental um, bandwidth to deal with actually educating your child? Um, if we focus on it in that way, because that's really what we've been asking the police to do. You know, each decade we add another thing for them to do. Um, and they're not necessarily trained or have the ability or resources to do them. So let's let's move on then um, to the next part of Mr. Sutherland's um, case and what happens. He's booked into the jail and he's taken to a specific unit of the jail. Now, for those that don't know, in the county jail, there are different units. There actually are units for people that are mentally ill or having mental health crises. It's our understanding at this point that Mr. Sutherland was not taken to that area. And Joe, I think this kind of ties into what you were saying is to what did those correctional officers or deputies know about Mr. Sutherland at that point? Did they know that he was suffering from a mental health crisis? Did they know that he had diagnoses? Did they know that he had maybe certain sensitivities to touching or to violence or words or maybe certain types of men or women? Um, he was not in an area where there may have been a mental health or a physical chart. Am I wrong? Right. Um, it's called the special monitoring unit. That's where usually individuals who either are suicidal or have known mental health issues, they, they can be watched closely. Um, again, I don't know why he wasn't put there coming. The tip off should have been, you got a call from Palmetto behavioral health that maybe there's more going on here. This wasn't just a random call at a random address. Um, if the corrections officer or the intake individuals did not do their due diligence on this, then that's a catastrophic oversight because he should not have been just in a regular cell. He should have been in the special monitoring unit. He should have had individuals already there speaking with him, finding out if he's on medication, does he need to take medication, 
things like that. Cause you just don't know a lot of times individuals that are going through a manic or crisis, if they don't get their medication, it just gets worse or just escalates from there. And unfortunately in this case, it appears that that's exactly what happened. Right. And, and judge, I'm going to turn to you next. So now's the real interesting legal issue as to why was Mr. Sutherland extracted from his cell? Um, this is a question that we keep getting a lot here at South Carolina for criminal justice reform. And we hear talked about why was he removed? Um, and what did we learn, Judge, is the reason or at least the stated reason as to why he was removed? And what is your opinion on that? Well, an individual is required to have a bond hearing. I think it is within 24 hours. And however, if a if an individual is having a mental health episode, then my question would be, why wasn't the bond hearing delayed? Um if he had made it into the courtroom for the bond hearing, it's not likely that it would have been productive or he would have had the mental awareness to fully understand what was occurring at the bond hearing. So when situations came up, uh, when I was presiding, I would let the officers know uh, if he's refusing, that's fine. We'll try again tomorrow. That that's totally fine. Um, now, also, I might, depending on if they were able to appear the next day, if they weren't still weren't in a place where they were able to appear the next day, then I may say, you know, um, state, would you consent to releasing the individual on a PR bond without them appearing? Or I might appoint a, a an attorney to represent them to kind of guide you know the situation from there but you know there are a lot of questions here about why he was essentially forced out i, I don't understand why a different decision was not made regarding simply postponing. And I understand that the, the, the rule and the amount of time in which a, you know, um, in which a bond hearing must occur. However, if you have extenuating circumstances, I think that we are w well within our authority as professionals to deviate from that rule if it serves the best interest of all those involved. Yeah, absolutely. And for those that don't know, you know, when, um, Alicia's talking about a bond hearing. That's a hearing where the magistrate judge um, determines whether you're a flight risk or a danger to the community and can set either a monetary bond, which is called a surety bond, or a PR bond known as a personal recognizance, where you won't have to actually pay any money to get out of jail. Now, it's not just a rule. It's a right, right? Just like your First Amendment right to protest, let's say, or your right to remain silent um, or your right against unreasonable searches and seizures. All these constitutional rights and rights that you have from the amendments are your rights. They're no one else's. Um, so a right to have a bond hearing within 24 hours. If I don't want to have my bond hearing, I can waive that right. Just like you can waive your right to um, your Fifth Amendment right. You can say, I don't want that. And when when Alicia talks about refusals, refusals um, 
can be many different kinds of refusals. You can waive your right, which is one thing we talk about here in Charleston with trials in the absence. If you don't go to court, there's a theory that you're waiving your right to your trial. Um, so that trial can take place without you, you know, which we have some concerns about too. But just as a bond hearing, you can waive your right to that bond hearing and sleep through your bond hearing, refuse to get up. That would be considered sometimes a waiver. Um, a lot of you know, I used to practice in Florida where we had, you know, bond hearings, we call them first appearances. Very regularly, we would see on the list of all the bond hearings for that morning, refusal, 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 refusal. People refuse for different reasons. One might refuse because he knows that he's not getting out of jail because he's got a pending other charge in another state. Another might refuse because he's detoxing and really physically can't get up. One might refuse because he's having a mental health crisis. And that's okay. They're allowed to do that refusal. Um, allegedly, from what we've heard, is that the prior chief who has since been terminated, my understanding is Chief Beatty, he used to be at the Charleston County Sheriff's Office at the jail, um, had allegedly a rule that said that no one can refuse their bond hearing. Alicia, you have you've had a different experience with that, right? If, if you had a, a, a defendant that came into court, as you were saying before, you had officers, deputies come up to you, is my understanding, asking, do you really want him to come? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. If I recall, there were there were occasions where the officer would notify me, um, the detention center officer. We're having a hard time with him today. Do you know, do you want us to go ahead and bring him up? And my answer was no, no, that that's fine. Uh, but it goes back to, you know, some of what Joe is saying. You you can't you have to have that awareness and you have to experience this to understand that if the individual is brought in, how productive would it be? And so there were were occasions where I was notified by the officer. They're not in a in a good state of mind today. And I I would make the decision. No, don't don't bring them in. Just let, let's just um, give it another try tomorrow. And so, um, you know, once again, I don't know. I think there's a lot to be discovered here in this situation involving Jamal Sutherland. And we all have a lot of questions. And, and you know, and that was one of my questions is why was he just not simply. And it seems like I recall Officers may have made that decision on their own. He's not in a good place today. We're going to have to, you know, and, and, and my once again, my response would be, that's fine. We'll give it a try tomorrow. I, I don't know. Once again, we have a lot of a lot of questions that need to be answered here. Absolutely. I think this is just the beginning of the information um, that we're getting. Um, so moving on from there. So clearly, for some reason, it was determined by someone that he should allegedly attend his bond hearing. Um, so an attempt was made to extract him or remove him from the cell. Um, and I think all of us here have watched that video and that portion of it. Joe, I'm going to turn to you at this point in terms of the process, the escalation, de-escalation, the use of forces that were done. Can you kind of talk us through what those officers, what you viewed them doing, what their um, progression was? 
Absolutely. Uh, I've said many times, one of the worst words that can be in any officer's vernacular is routine. And to me, seeing that, that looked like a cell extraction they've probably done hundreds, if not thousands of times. And unfortunately, the situation can change very quickly. They approached it as if it was just someone who was uncooperative. You know, they're yelling, you know, Sutherland, Sutherland. It's just very um, cold, authoritative. To me, I found when dealing with a lot of subjects, even, you know, under substance abuse issues, um, just saying their first name. You know, one of the books I read was How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, Sir Dale Carnegie said, um, a person's name to that person is the sweetest sound in any language. And when you're dealing with someone who is uncooperative, it's very important to try and build rapport and trust. Threats of violence, shows of force don't help, especially someone going through a mental health crisis because they're already scared. They're already confused. You know, making them more aware and validating their paranoia only severely elevates the situation. So to me, it just looked like they were in one gear the whole time. Uh, we have uncooperative subject and have to perform a cell extraction. And that's really just all I saw. There was Can you no, say that again, Joe? What was it they said? Just looked like individual going for a cell extraction. And to me, that's in there and lies the problem. I think they went at it just from a routine perspective. I mean, there was never seemed to be any worry in their voice. They were just kind of being colloquial and talking with each other, you know, oh, spray the pepper spray in there. I guess we're going to have to go in. It's not, Hey, he's probably having an issue. So they just kind of stayed in that one gear and never really thought there's a bigger issue at hand or there are better ways to handle this. And so then they, it looks like it appears that they're spraying in some kind of pepper spray or tear gas or something in the cell, but it doesn't look like they're trying to go in there with their hands to physically extract him without the use of less than lethal or lethal in some way force. Again, it's, it's all a form of pain compliance, spray the pepper spray. All right. We're just going to wait him out. Like you're dealing with someone who just doesn't want to come out just to be obstinate. Again, your mental health issue, it's probably not going to affect them that much because people that are manic going through issues, their pain tolerance is incredibly heightened. So that's when you see officers then go the next level. Oh, this isn't working. Let's do this now. Again, instead of taking a step back and just trying to talk it out, he's in the cell. He's not going anywhere. Feel free to wait and take a few extra minutes to see how can we maybe not use force. You know, again, just say his name, say Jamal. Can we talk for a second? What's going on? Instead of just shouting, you know, Sutherland, come over here, just shouting directives. It just clearly, if it wasn't working for the first few minutes, doing it for another 10 minutes and then pepper spraying him, then tasing him, you know, clearly we end up where we're at. God forbid that in law enforcement that we should have compassionate and empathetic uh, interactions with those who who we we encounter. I, I, I don't understand how we got to that point um, in, in in law enforcement uh, to have care and concern for those that 
we are serving. Because even for those who are being detained, they still deserve that care and concern, that that empathy. Uh, and especially with someone who has been diagnosed with a mental illness and is clearly going through uh, um, uh, an episode of some type. I, I don't get it other than the fact that I do believe and I will continue to say this, that those two deputies, um, they fell back to their default setting of aggression uh, at, at, by any means necessary. Um, in the aftermath, fortunately, the current sheriff uh, has changed the protocol that uh, allows those who uh, do not want to attend bond hearing to do so. Uh, I think they're actually looking at implementing uh, some type of a remote um, situation, whereas they never have to even leave the cell. So, of course, that's costly. And that's something that you have to run through county council. Of course, that's another fight, because when you have once again, as Joe said, when you have people who have not experienced these these different things with with people, they have they have a tendency to pass judgment according to their own thought process. And so when when the sheriff asked county council to fund this or, or that, if they haven't had direct experience in it, more than likely they can say, no, we don't need to do that. But the reality is, is that it needs to be done. Um, I strongly believe, again, that they they went back to their default setting. This was a training defect that had gone on for a long time. The uh, female deputy had a history of it, documented history of uh, excessive use of force and, and with a taser involving a taser um, from 2015, I believe it was. Mm. Um, how many times prior to this that just didn't result in a death did this happen? And that's something that needs to be looked into, um, not necessarily to try to prove a point, but moving forward, what do we do to change it so we don't have this happen again? And we don't overlook officers who might have a tendency to go in that direction of over-aggressive policing. And Joe, so in terms of, you know, after they, they spray pepper spray on him and then they're escalating the situation and then the tasers come out, you know, you served Charleston Police Department on the streets downtown in the team nine division that you dealt with people that were very aggressive, drunk, high. Um, and you never in your entire career as a police officer ever had to use your taser. Correct. And that is on the street where you don't even know what, if people have weapons, right? Yes, that's correct. Allie. But here there would be no way he would have a weapon at this point. Am I wrong? It would be a very hard press for him to have one at that current juncture in lockup, secured, already gone through processing. He's already been searched. Yeah, he, it, the only weapons he would have are his fists at that point. And when you're dealing with deputies who are armored, heavily armed at this point, it's a hard um, thing to argue that he's much of a threat to them in that instance. Um, especially he's pepper sprayed. So at the very least he may not have as much pain. He's going to have trouble seeing since he's been pepper sprayed and, you know, tasing someone six to eight times I've been tasered. I elected it's voluntary to go through the actual 
taser training or to receive a taser um, or to receive a shock. And I elected to do so because I felt if I ever had to deploy this, I want to know what this feels like. Because it's very easy to squeeze the trigger and then you give them a five second stun. You squeeze the trigger, it's automatic five seconds, and then it counts down automatically, whether you squeeze the trigger or not. Now, if someone's being tased eight times, or that's, you know, continuously, that's 30 to 40 seconds of 50,000 volts going through them. It's very difficult to breathe. And you have people on top of you at this point, just making it harder for you to breathe. And so, and when you have two officers that, of both deployed tasers, you don't know who's actively tasing, who's not. So he could have a double dose of electricity going through him for up to 30 seconds or a minute. And, you know, they say he's not complying. If you're tased, you can't move. You are completely fully locked out. So then they take it. Oh, he's not complying. He's still resisting. Tase again, tase again. And it just looked like it was just this vicious cycle that just kept repeating itself until it was basically unresponsive. Joe, when you watched that video, did you see what you're talking about now in terms of, I think you talked to me before about the sound that a taser makes. Um, Can you talk about that? If you hear the sound of a taser, that very distinctive popping noise, then, well, to back up, taser works. Where the laser goes, the top barb goes, and there's one that goes underneath. So there's two barbs. If both enter your body, that completes the circuit. You don't hear that popping noise. If you do hear it, then one barb is out. I don't recall hearing it in the video. So that means he had two darts in him per deployment. So he was getting the full treatment. He was feeling the full force of the tasers from those deputies seeing that again in my mind after watching it i haven't watched it since the first night i watched it i couldn't watch it again i know um alicia it took you a while to be able to bring yourself to watch it um and at that point not only was he unresponsive but they lifted him up him up and tried to put him in the restraining chair even after that, which it wasn't until I think a nurse noticed that he was unresponsive and had no pulse. Um, and then several minutes went by before um, they attempted to uh, use first aid and try and revive him. Joe, what do you know about like that restraining chair that they use in the jail um, and when they use that? Do you know about that? Yes. I mean, it's typically reserved for individuals that are non-compliant they're belligerent aggressive they could pose a threat to themselves or staff um i don't know what the plan was if he was going to be in front of a presiding judge in that chair i don't know if that would have even been allowed um at that point if you're bringing out the restraint chair i i think we should have pretty much taken bond court off the table if it's become this serious of an issue but for whatever reason, the issue was pressed. He should have just been allowed to stay in a cell, have someone come talk to him, or at least stronger de-escalation tactics should have been imposed other than just repeating the same two, three commands over and over again. Come over here, put your hands behind your back. Come over here, put your hands behind your back. That It was just, they're just repeating that ad nauseum instead of 
trying to actually talk to him. They were just giving commands, the same commands over and over again. I guess the question now is, you know, what now? Um, different uh, grassroots organizations, including Pastor Dixon and other groups like us, are demanding, um, you know, answers, demanding justice. Um, some groups are demanding the immediate prosecution of all deputies that are involved, um, or cor- I'm sorry, correctional officers who were involved in the, in um, the treatment of Mr. Sutherland and why he died. Um, the elected solicitor here, Scholar Wilson, has yet to um, file any charges at that point. But I believe in a press conference last week, she had made a comment that they will be making a decision by the end of June, if I'm not mistaken. Did you hear that, Pastor Dixon? I think it was by the end of June. Um, And meanwhile, other groups are calling not just for the prosecution of those officers. um, There was an immediate originally a demand for the firing of those officers, which had not happened yet. It did happen. I believe it was last week um, or a few days after the the video was released. Um, The current um, Sheriff Graciano did terminate their employment. Um, But it took us a really long time to see that video for that video to be released. And that was a big concern among many activists, including I think the family too. Um, from the information that we gathered at SC for CJR, it's our understanding that SLED, which is South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, takes over investigations when there is um, a death that arises at the hands of law enforcement. They came in and they finished their investigation two weeks ago. Um, And it wasn't up until that point that they were allowed, according to SLED, to release the video. And then the county jail and the sheriff um, and the lawyers involved there were in negotiations with the victims' families, with Mr. Sutherland's family's attorneys regarding a resolution, um, a settlement resolution for um, what happened to Jamal. Um, And then once they realized there was not a settlement, then um, Sheriff Graciana decided to release the video. Um, So that still is a slow process, right? So it was January and then it wasn't until May that these videos were released um, and many groups were demanding the release for several months. Um, Pastor Dixon, what are your feelings, your comments on how long it took to get those videos and the actions in terms of the criminal justice system for justice for Jamal? Okay, ready? <laughs> okay, all right. First, first and foremost, we got to understand that um, the SLED investigation, it, it, it no way has to supersede an arrest, determination, or, 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 arrest, or arrest. It's an investigation. The incident happened on January 5th. The video was available then. And there's no law that says that those that were involved, uh, that they couldn't be terminated immediately and, and arrested and, and charged immediately under suspicion. Then the investigation carries on. It's like with um, drug dealers or anybody else out here. Law enforcement does an investigation. Then they make the arrest, of course. But they don't have any evidence. That's what the investigation is about, to acquire and accumulate the evidence in order to make the arrest. In this situation, the evidence was clear and present. It's the same evidence today as it was then. 
And so that, that arrest could have been done. And, and historically, we can see that happen in 2015 with Walter Scott. Walter Scott was killed by Michael Slager on April 4th, 2015, shot in the back five times on video. The family got a hold of the video because the person who shot it got the, the video into the hands of the attorneys and the family. So the family actually controlled the narrative, not law enforcement. The family and through their attorneys released the video three days later on April 7th. And that same day, April 7th, without any sled investigations, without anything, Michael Slager was immediately terminated from his job as a North Charleston police officer. He was immediately charged and arrested by the ninth, same Ninth Circuit solicitor who's saying we got to wait until, in this case, till SLED gives us the investigative report. Something is wrong. <laughs> There's a serious disconnect when you have one clear incident of an entirely different protocol that they are overlooking now in order to, because law enforcement had the video first not the community. Now they, can, they, they control the, the narrative and they've used that in order to wait this whole thing out a hundred and some odd days since Jamal Sutherland's death to the pain and suffering of the family, to a community that is seething and at a boiling point. And they know this instead of, instead of, of, instead of giving the information out and allowing the community to see exactly what happened. And then moving forward the same way as in, that's the reason why, that's one of the reasons why in 2015, there was no community outrage or, 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 or violence or destruction because everything was on the table ahead of time. But as long as they wanna play this game, then they're actually asking for trouble from the community because the longer the community is left with any concrete information to go on. There's this speculation, doubt, are they covering it up and all of this, all these other conversations. Not only that, sending this family through undue duress for a period of time that did not have to be. So there's no difference in the cases. The video evidence is there other than the fact that in this case, law enforcement controls the video. And in, in 2015 with Walter Scott, the community controlled the video. Let me bring in um, Alicia Flores. And for those of you who don't know that Alicia was a prosecutor in Miami, Florida, for a while before she moved up to South Carolina. Um, in your experience as a prosecutor, um, how does it work? Let's say it's not law enforcement or not a correctional officer. You know, we have cases where our clients, I'm a criminal defense attorney, former public defender, where our clients were investigated for murder. Um, but I will say it in a lot of my cases, there's uh, the warrants go out pretty quickly. Right. Um, can you talk about that, um, Judge? I would echo Reverend Dixon. Um, you know, yeah, if there's a the when the criminal investigation is completed, um, a warrant is drafted and executed and served. Uh, once again, a lot of questions here. I do not understand why or know why there was delay in the release of the video. Um, so, yeah, it raises a lot of questions. And also, also to tag along with Reverend Dixon reiterated, is that 
it violates the trust of the community when there's there's a delay, there's a gap in between when something happens that appears to us to be obvious that some this needs to be investigated and it needs to be resolved in one way or the other. There is that mistrust in the community. There's that level of distrust when there's a delay in that. And when, and if an individual is under investigation for any other type of crime, we may not see such a delay unless there's an ongoing sting operation or something like that. And so uh, I think that we, the ones that are in positions of authority, would need to be mindful of this. And it needs to be investigated quickly and thoroughly and charged accordingly if that's the decision that is ultimately made. And I think some of the frustration is a double standard, right? You know, if we have, um, let's say, a, a white female victim um, who was killed, you know, the sense of urgency, potentially the arrest, the warrants, the investigation, the prosecution, um, we imagine might go a lot faster than it did in this case. And, and there's no denying that race does not play a role in this. Joe, I'd like to go to you next. You know, you, as a law enforcement officer, you would um, write reports, conduct investigations, um, get warrants. Was it unusual to have um, to get a warrant, you know, without completing the entire investigation? I mean, warrants are based on probable cause, right? That's not um, a very high standard. Lots of things can be probable cause, um, more likely than not, than a crime was committed. And then that person committed the crime. Um, what's your opinion on, on how fast a, a warrant can be um, obtained for a case like this, where there is actual video evidence of who's involved? Very quickly. I mean, I've had to go to Judge Flores' chambers to get warrants before. Uh, it's it's not that hard with everything is out there on the table. Video evidence. Very clear as day. It is not difficult at all to get a warrant that it's the wheel should have moved much quicker. You know, four months is anything less than full transparency is unacceptable. And body cam footage falls under the freedom of information act we should have known about this january 6th not four months later the next day we should have already been having this conversation about jamal sutherland not now so something is very off the, the point is being missed somewhere well i mean let's talk about you know what could the possible charges be for these correctional officers, um, you know, a, a lot of groups are, are, are calling for indictment for murder. Um, you know, murder is a legal term, right, Judge? Um, murder, it requires intent. It requires malice aforethought. So basically the desire, the knowledge, the intent to kill someone. Um, and I think that that is where the bigger hang up here is and where I think that we need to look at the changes. Um, Many people, as we know, have been killed at the hands of police officers. And we know the huge hurdle that even prosecutors, even if they want to do good, have to climb over in order to get true indictments or charges that will stand up in court because the elements are tough to obtain. I think it's going to be probably difficult for um, 
a prosecutor, any prosecutor to prove that any of these correctional officers intended to murder and to kill Jamal Sutherland. So then what's the alternative? We have lesser included offenses, right? Or perhaps we should have new laws that um, perhaps say that it's a felony to tase someone or use excessive force to the point where they die. And then we could have potentially a felony murder um, charge put on top of that. Um, Alicia, what, what are your thoughts on those and how the laws work with prosecutors here? It's tough because it's a tough balancing act. Um, you want to make sure you do a thorough investigation before you um, bring charges against anyone. Uh, you want to make sure that you maintain the confidence of law enforcement um, as well as serve the serve justice in the community. But I think one, two words that keep coming back to mind. One was used by Pastor Dixon, the default, going back to the default mode, and the other by Joe, routine. And I think that this, as well as past scenarios in which uh, individuals have lost their lives in the custody of law enforcement, um, is going to have to cause us to reimagine everything, everything that has to do with law enforcement. It may even need to be dismantled. So it's like you said, it may be a dra um, drafting new legislation. We may need to look at qualified immunity. We may need to add charges in which an individual who um, dies at the hands of law enforcement uh, we may need to look at whether or not we need laws that address the excessive use of force. And so unless we're willing to do that, we're going to find ourselves back in the same situation over and over and over again. And on that part over and over and over again, almost uh, a year to the day, we had um, Professor Seth Stoughton out of the University of South Carolina, who was talking about his um, his work when it comes to excessive use of force, use of force and um, educating all of us at how we are one of the only states in the entire country that does not have any law that regulates police use of force. Um, we certainly have strong laws when it comes to qualified immunity um, for law enforcement. So. Um, Meanwhile, and I'm going to plug this terrible law that we're, we just passed legislation that is making the default method of execution, the electric chair and the firing squad. And yet a year after, unfortunately, George Floyd's death, um, we're stuck with the same issue um, when it comes to use of force at the hands of law enforcement. Um, so we have a lot of work to do. Um, I'm going to ask for closing thoughts from each of you. I apologize. We went over. I could talk to y'all all night, but I don't want to take up your time. Um, and I want to give you all an opportunity for closing thoughts. Let's start with Joe Jacobs. Yes. Um, clearly, you know, the routine and default, that's probably the biggest issue we see with this. This was just going back to that one gear, one mode and not willing to think critically or they were just unable to. Um, I feel that 
the culture has to make a drastic shift and it needs to happen years ago with, you know, we've spoken on the militarization of police and the culture is that a lot of times you speak to some of these veteran officers, like it's war, it's us against them. It's us against the judges, us against the media, us against activists. And that is those waters run very deep and people believe it almost fanatically that it is you step out, you put your uniform on, you got to be prepared and ready to go to war instead of, hey, we're here to help people in our community. Even if we are arresting people, they're still just that humans. And sometimes they forget that they're not just perpetrators, violent offenders, you know, their care is our charge. And it's not hard to treat people with empathy and like a human being. I think a lot of people would be surprised at how positive those outcomes can be. And I think that was severely lacking in this case. Thank you, Joe. Um, I'm going to go to Alicia Rigo Flores next. Uh, First of all, I wanted to commend you, Allie, for taking up this issue and addressing this issue. And I feel very privileged and honored to be on your panel this evening. And I think that we all have to continue to work to dismantle our current, current law enforcement system and our court system. It's not fair. It's not just in all cases. And a lot of times it's dependent on who you know or how much money you have or what state of mind that you're in. And what kind of society are we if we don't protect the most vulnerable members of our society like Jamal Sutherland? And I thank you for having us, for giving us a voice tonight. And I hope and pray that we will continue um, to bring justice not only for Jamal Sutherland, for all those black and brown who are unfairly targeted in our current criminal justice system. Thank you, Alicia. And if you can, um, do you want to talk about what you guys are doing at Root and Rebound right now and where they can follow you on social media and your website? Yes, um, we are focused on mainly reentry advocacy. And we are about empowering those who have been most impacted by mass incarceration. So we may do expungement cases, those who are facing challenges and barriers, due to their criminal records, which may manifest in a family court issue um, and case related to housing. So we're all about picking up the pieces in a system that may have failed many individuals. Thank you. Pastor Dixon, closing thoughts. Uh, First off, thank you all so much for allowing me to share this panel with such esteemed uh, guests here tonight. Um, thank you, Allie, uh, from the bottom of my heart. And uh, Alicia, I don't know whether you know it, but I'm formally incarcerated myself. And uh, so if you ever need my assistance, I worked along with Lester Young for a while. Uh, I'm in the Band of Box Project and everything else he's doing. So I've been kind of in the trenches with that, too. And it's kind of personal to me because that's where I actually started my advocacy when I came out of South Carolina Department of Corrections in 2001. Um, Empathetic policing. I I, I think that's where we are moving toward um, because of the efforts of um, 
South Carolina for criminal justice reform and others. I think it's bringing, putting a heart back into law enforcement. It's unfortunate that it's at the end of so much tragedy, so much trauma. But in giving birth to new life, there are birth pains that preceded. And I do believe that we're in the birth pains of the new life when it comes to criminal justice and criminal justice reform. Um, empathetic policing uh, and a compassionate um, um, judicial uh, um, moving forward uh, uh, areas in our court system. From an activist standpoint, as we look at these situations, as we look at the Jamal Sutherland situation and other situations, we see where the injustices in the policy, procedure, and protocol, where these lie at, those have to be fixed, or we're going to just, as Alicia said, we're going to keep on repeating this. We cannot allow that to happen. So we have to fix all of the places where they're broken so we can minimize the chance of these things happening again. And so from the activist standpoint, in the streets, we're not going to allow uh, those who have the ability to make the change, to set the policy right, to implement the protocol, we're not going to allow them the comfort of, of being able to make absurd statements like um, this was not an excessive force situation um, or, or, or to have a standard that allowed for an, a termination and arrest six years ago that doesn't apply now. We're not going to do that. And the voice of the people are going to, it's going to be amplified in this time, of course, in a peaceful, peaceful manner. Um, but we're not going to let that, that previous uh, mindset just go without being addressed. So from the street level, um, and I work a lot, of, lot with the young advocates out here, they're smart, they're strategic. They get turned off by a lot of older people because they, they cuss up. I'm, I'll say that, they cuss up. But they exercise their First Amendment rights and they exercise them according to the law. And those isolated incidences of a destruction, they're not, that's not indicative of the uh, advocates that are, and activists that are out here in the streets. So the change is coming. I feel it's coming. But unfortunately, that new life, comes with the birth pains that lead up to the delivery. And right now we're in the birth pains phase and I'm not trivializing the death of anyone, but we, there's, it's more obvious now than ever before the discrimination uh, that black people have uh, gone through in America uh, in modern times at the hands of law enforcement and the other systemic areas where um, Black people have been subject to, to less than um, equitable treatment in America. So now is the time. This is the day. And I do believe that the bright, a brighter day is coming. Thank you so much, Pastor Dixon, Alicia, Joe. It was such an honor to have all of you on tonight. What an incredible conversation that we were able to have from different experiences of all of us. Um, I really um, learned a lot from all of you, and I, I can't thank you enough. We'll have to have you all back again soon. Um, 
Everyone who's listening, thank you for tuning in on the Facebook Live, also on the Direct Examination podcast. If you want to learn more um, about South Carolina for criminal justice reform, about these issues, whether it's about mental health in the criminal justice system or the new death penalty legislation in South Carolina or the need for court reform um, and systems change, speedy trial, our lists go on and on, don't they, Judge? Um, <laughs> but if you want to learn more, visit us at wwwsc 4 cjr.org that's the number four sc4cjr.org we're also on facebook instagram tiktok linkedin youtube i'm missing one and twitter at sc4cjr um and we love interns we have interns both on the the undergrad and the law student level so those of you law students listening in tonight on the podcast please reach out to us if you have any questions or you'd like to um, be connected to one of our panelists for more information you can email us at info at sc4cjr.org we'd be happy to help you out and to forward your information or connect you with one of our panelists um, and esteemed guests today thank you all for tuning in to tune into more Direct Examination podcasts. You can find us on the Apple Podcasts, Direct Examination Podcasts, South Carolina. Um, you can also follow Direct Examination Podcasts on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you all so much. Have a wonderful night, um, a wonderful day whenever you're listening to this podcast. And remember to speak up for your rights. And um, knowledge is power, especially when it comes to the criminal justice system. So let's kind of share this information so we can work um, to reform our system from a nonpartisan level. Thank you all. Have a great night. <laughs>